Today's reading can be found in the book of Luke, um, starting at chapter 16, reading from verse 1 to 13, and that can be uh, found on page 1049 in your church Bibles. So that's Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, People will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 1,500. So he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tonnes of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Thank you, Amy, for reading so clearly that uh, initially rather baffling parable. Let's pray for God's help in uh, understanding it this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that uh, you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear, that we may prove to be your disciples. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, we're on a journey with Christ to Jerusalem, and the section of Luke's Gospel we're in at the moment is a a series of parables uh, addressed to different audiences. And uh, last week, Andrew Grimstone spoke on the three-part parable that Jesus told to um, the Pharisees, largely, and, and those who opposed him. And this week, uh, we have uh, uh, another parable that, like last week's parable, ends in uh, a party in uh, eternity, a party in heaven. Um, but this parable is addressed, we read in verse 1, to Jesus' disciples. So um, this morning, most of what I have to share will 
be directed at those of you uh, who are already uh, followers of Jesus. But if you are here as a guest this morning, or you've been many times but would not yet consider yourself to be one of Jesus' followers, uh, first of all, very glad that you are here, and I hope that what I have to share will also challenge you about what your own life is founded upon and whether Jesus Christ may offer a better foundation uh, and you would like to find out more about uh, following him, I'm very happy to talk further about that uh, after the service this morning. Now, this is, at first glance, one of the most perplexing of Jesus' parables. But fortunately, it's one where Jesus actually tells us what the point of the story is in verses 8 and 9. And I'm going to focus mostly on those this morning, which very conveniently in the church Bibles are on the fold of the page. Uh, But uh, the first point uh, is that Jesus uh, tells us uh, in verse 8 that the master commended the dishonest manager um, uh, uh, the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So the master commends the steward not for his dishonesty, but for, as we might say these days, being savvy. Uh, Now that is a great relief because the Bible as a whole shows us clearly the utmost importance of truth and integrity. And to interpret the parable as Jesus is saying that dishonesty is acceptable when you are in a tight corner is completely contrary to the flow of the rest of the Bible. The ninth commandment given by God to Moses, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, indicates a particularly serious form of dishonesty, which in certain cultural contexts can cause other people's serious harm or even death. But the Old Testament also specifically says in Leviticus, Micah, and several times in the book of Proverbs, that financial dishonesty in business is both morally wrong and displeasing to God. Proverbs 20, verse 23, is particularly strong on this. The Lord detests different weights and dishonest scales. Do not please him. And the New Testament also emphasizes the importance of truth-telling and the way in which we should do it. St. Paul in Romans 9.1 says that he speaks the truth in Christ and does not lie. And in Ephesians 4, he instructs his readers also to speak the truth in love. And John's gospel particularly emphasizes the importance of truth in the life of Jesus. In chapter 1, he tells us that Jesus is full of truth and grace. And in chapter 14, Jesus himself says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And when he stands on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor, in chapter 18, Jesus tells Pilate, for this purpose was I born, and for this purpose have I come into the world to bear witness to the truth. But it's John 8 that, for me, contains Jesus' most extensive teaching on truth that makes it totally incredible that he could ever, in this parable, be commending dishonesty and deception. John 8, verses 44 to 46 are worth reading in their entirety. 
Jesus says there to those who uh, uh, thought that race and religion were sufficient to make them right with God, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, refusing to uphold the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language because he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you can prove me guilty of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, my heart sort of woke up this morning when Trevor shared in our pre-time that verse from Psalm 95. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden. Uh, your hearts. And clearly there is no point in believing in Christ if you do not believe that he is telling the truth and indeed that he is the truth. But it just struck me with the force of that verse this morning and again at the beginning of this service that if we do reach the position where we hear the words of truth and we actually have that revelation that Jesus is speaking the truth then Jesus' question of why do you not believe me is direct to our hearts this morning. And if you are in that position and you have heard the truth proclaimed again and again, maybe, in your past, and you hear it this morning, and your reason tells you that this is right, I urge you to put your faith and trust in Christ. Today, if you will hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. But if we are followers of Christ, if as Christians we systematically and regularly lie, then this is a very serious matter indeed. And it puts us, as we have just heard from the words of Jesus, in very bad company. It's an incredibly dangerous place to be spiritually. And again, if you are here in that position this morning as a believer... I urge you to confess it, repent of it, and seek out appropriate help. And if those lies are criminal in nature, then to be prepared to face up to the consequences. My wife and I worshipped in a church once where there was someone in that very position. Now, all of this is to make clear that Jesus is not commending dishonesty in this passage. So now, if we return to our key key verse 8, we see there that it's not that the dishonest steward was commended for his dishonesty, but for his uh, shrewdness. And I've suggested on the slide here that perhaps savvy or canny or smart or cute might be streetwise. These are some of the modern equivalents. And the steward knew what he had to do in the situation he was in. So reduced the amount owed to his master's debtors to carry favor with them so that they owed him one when he was finally sacked. Now, the master was fully aware in verse 2 of what sort of man um, the, uh, the steward was, um, and he certainly uh, sacked him for being uh, dishonest. Uh, he knew that he had uh, wasted his uh, possessions. And he sacked him for that, but nevertheless had to hand it to the guy 
for trying to secure his own future in the days that lay ahead. Now, that word uh, that is used for uh, shrewdness that I've uh, put up as savvy there is exactly the same word that Jesus uses in the much more well-known saying in Matthew 10, verse 16, where Jesus says to his disciples, See, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And quite a few translations, including our own church Bibles, translates be wise as serpents as be shrewd as snakes. Now, in saying this, of course, Jesus knows full well that the devil, the father of lies, appears in the book of Genesis first as a snake. And in the book of Revelation, he's also referred to as that ancient serpent. Now, by using this picture of the wily serpent, Jesus is not afraid to tell his disciples, perhaps in today's language, as it were, to beat the devil at his own game, but by using truth instead of lies. And as the devil does not hesitate to use his cunning shrewdness for very evil ends, so we as Christians need to use our godly shrewdness for Christ's kingdom. Now, this seems to me to be confirmed by uh, the very next uh, statement in uh, the end of verse 8, where Jesus says that the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own than the people of the light. Now, that's quite humbling, isn't it? But if the Lord Jesus himself says this, then we need to take that seriously too. And I stress this point because on more than one occasion, I have seen zealous Christians being totally dismissive of other people just because they are not believers. And to be honest, I have done it myself many times, particularly when I was younger and, of course, knew absolutely everything about everything. But because it's a a lot easier to talk about others' mistakes than our own, I'm going to share an anonymous story just to illustrate the kind of attitude that I'm talking about. When I was a hospital doctor way back in the last century, there were two other junior doctors on the same uh, unit who were Christians. One of them was a courteous, gentle believer, and the other one, well, was not quite so much like that. And we all worked for the same uh, registrar who was a rank above us, and I'll call him Ahmed. And Ahmed was an experienced, highly motivated doctor and treated us juniors very well and spent as much time teaching us as, uh, as he could, which is not what all uh, senior staff did. And I once commented on this to my Christian colleague, who was the less gentle of the two, to which he replied curtly, and I've remembered it to this day, oh, he can't teach me anything because he's a Muslim. Now, that was a very unwise thing to say, and I didn't know how to reply to him at the time. I was so shocked by it. And at the very least, that indicates an unteachable spirit so very different from the wisdom of which the Apostle James speaks in his letter. The wisdom that comes from above is first pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, 
and willing to yield to others. And James is even more direct in chapter 3 and verse 13. Which of you is wise and well-instructed? Let them prove it by a right life with conduct guided by a wisely teachable spirit. Now, are we teachable? Are we easily entreated, as one of the translations puts it? Now, this is why Jesus is saying here in verse 8 that even those who do not know him at all, even if I may say the Richard Dawkins of this world, can teach us a thing or two if we are open to learn from them. It doesn't mean that we need to absorb worldliness, but it does mean we need to accept that even unbelievers can get a grasp of truths that sometimes elude us as God's people. And it's very easy to get a holier-than-thou reputation in our workplace, not because we are holy, but because we are proud, and our pride is just wearing a religious disguise. So I suggest, then, that this parable is an example of the kind of how much the more teaching from Jesus, which is a pattern, as we've been learning over these weeks, that he frequently uses. If this dishonest steward was commended by the master for his wisdom in worldly terms of looking ahead and taking prompt action for the future when he knew he would be sacked, then how much the more ought the children of God to respond wisely to the fact that one day we too will be called to account for the way in which we have been stewards of God's gifts to us. And indeed, if you're not a believer here this morning, you too will be called to account for why you have not trusted in Christ. Now, do we grasp that realization and look ahead and plan adequately as the steward did and take prompt action when a change of course is necessary, particularly in regard to the use of what Jesus calls worldly wealth in verse 9. And this now brings me to my second and briefer point, that Jesus, our master, commands us as his disciples not to focus on earthly gains, but on eternal investments. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts this more plainly, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And in that same section of the sermon, Jesus tells us exactly what he says in uh, the final verse uh, here in Luke 16, in verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, Jesus is not saying here that you can't be a Christian accountant or a banker or an entrepreneur uh, or be involved in any way in the world of finance. But what he is saying is that you can't put God first and money first in your life. However, in this particular parable, Jesus is also showing that if God is first in our life, then money, worldly wealth, is something that we can use in his service. 
And the most excellent use of it that we can make is by using it in a way to make friends. Because friendship is a major bridge by which unbelievers come to know Christ. And Jesus implies here in verse 9 that those that we have introduced to Christ, if, we, uh, if they predecease us, will welcome us into our heavenly home when we die. And how wonderful is that? I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What an amazing prospect. And one of the things the Lord has been speaking to me about a lot recently um, is the importance of hospitality. Not necessarily having dinner parties or indeed any kind of parties which require a lot of planning, but to have an open door, have an open door in your heart to begin with, but then an open door of your home of inviting others in or asking them out for coffee or contributing financially towards the many activities involving hospitality in the life of our church family. I'm trying at the moment, under conviction of this, to get better at friendships because I realize that they are the most important thing that we have and the only thing that we can take with us when we die. Our money, our reputations, our ambitions, our little empires, we can take none of them when we go. But Jesus tells us that the relationship that we have with him and with the countless numbers of others who believe in him, those friendships will endure into eternity and they will welcome us into our eternal home that the Lord Jesus has gone to prepare for us. Now, as I come into land, a story about my mother-in-law, Heather. Now, she was one of the most hospitable and kind people I have ever met. And not surprisingly, she had oodles of friends. And the first time, she and David, her husband, invited me round for dinner after it became abundantly clear that I was rather interested in their daughter. They had uh, an impressive dining table that evening covered with a huge bright red tablecloth. And so wanting to appear to be at my best, I offered to light the candles on the table, only at the last minute to burn my finger on the match and with horror to watch a small circle of flame <laughs> spreading out across this uh, tablecloth. I quickly extinguished it uh, with a glass, but the hole was by that time uh, very visible, and I was totally gutted. But Heather was totally unfazed, and she calmly said, don't worry, these things happen. And she put a table mat over the hole and carried on regardless. Now, she had taken to heart the Bible's teaching to take the spoiling of your goods gladly. And if you're hospitable, your goods are likely to be spoiled in one way or another. That's, that's part of the prize. And frankly, at that time, had I been in her place, I would have been completely livid. Ah, but you may be thinking that is only a trivial thing. But Jesus says here in verse 10, no, it isn't. 
Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with very much. Because that's the trouble with lies, isn't it? When somebody lies over a trivial matter, then you can be absolutely certain that they have other bigger things in their life that they are lying about as well. And money, sex, and power are often the masters that such lies are serving in the lives of unbelievers and believers alike. And that's why Jesus addresses money here, and we shall be hearing much more about that in relation to the Pharisees who are lovers of money uh, next week. But I want us in closing to just think about some challenges to us from this passage. Do we have an arrogance about our Christian faith that despite claiming that we are saved by grace, we nevertheless think unbelievers can't teach us anything? Jesus tells us here the very reverse is true, and the children of this world often put us to shame. Secondly, how much or how little of our money is spent in building friendships, directly or indirectly, that will enable us to speak openly and naturally about Christ so that they, when we die, will be there to welcome us into eternal habitations. And thirdly, what are the little things that we are being dishonest about and holding on to, perhaps because we think they don't really matter? Uh, Jesus says that if we're doing that, we will also be uh, dishonest in much. So I'm going to just give uh, a few moments for us to reflect upon those things, particularly before we come to the Lord's table to worship him and take communion together. And then uh, Trevor will come up and uh, introduce the next song. And if anything has uh, struck you this morning, particularly if you don't yet know Jesus and uh, uh, you're, you're wanting to, be very, very happy to talk with you later. Let's just spend a few moments in, in quiet. <laughs>